Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt, and I'm here on March 5th, 2015 at Elton Vineyards, Dick and Betty O'Brien. And our first question in all these interviews always is, why wine? You want to tell the romantic story of how we got started? Oh, I suppose we could. In 1980, we were on a trip in Germany, and we were staying with a German family, and the gentleman had a very small vineyard of white varietal, probably Riesling, and he made the family wine for the whole year, and we were so impressed with that. And so that was in 1980, and so we came home, and we're talking to the father-in-law and mother-in-law about putting in a vineyard, and they sort of looked at us like, you don't know anything about farming, which was true. I was an educator for 30 years, and We'd, you'd been off the farm since college. And so it was a case of, um, we had to literally talk to him for about two to three years to get him to think about it. And I think the, the gods were all with us and all the signs because what happened, they used to take their winter vacations down in Arizona, but they'd go through California. We said, well, why don't you take and stop at one of the winery and vineyards down there and see what they're thinking. And lo and behold, they pulled into the first one and the owner came out on his John Deere tractor with his John Deere hat on. And he came, my father-in-law came back and says, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and uh, we put in five acres at the very first. And it was uh, Pinot Noir, of course. And we had some Mueller at that time. Mm -hmm. And we had the old California clone of Chardonnay. 108. 108, which was not the clone for here. <laughs> and? Well, the other part of the, the German part of the story was um, the ambiance of floating down the Rhine River at night, drinking wine and looking at all those beautiful vineyards on the hillsides. <laughs> It was a so. moonlit night, and we had enough Riesling in us. <laughs> so, and frankly, when we were in college, you didn't drink wine. Uh, and I don't think we probably started drinking wine until we were well into our 30s. And it became an interesting uh, addition to a dinner, which really surprised us. We had no idea. We were basically college beer drinkers. And then probably a little bit of spirits at that time. But wine was not anywhere in our vocabulary. It was almost a mystery. Well, and we had the serendipity of the fact that other people had um, actually who were, who were going into the wine business had actually looked at the property where we ended up planting the vineyard and uh, been interested in buying that from my parents to grow grapes. And they weren't interested in selling the land, but uh, we had somebody else's ideas that it was a good place, uh, which it has turned out to be for grapes. 
so the vineyard land was already in your family. How tell us had it been in your family a long time? Had your had your family bought it with the intention of ever growing grapes? It was a no. complete complete. No, they purchased the property in uh, the 1950s, and they grew um, grain, all kinds of grain, wheat, barley, oats, um, cowpeas, and then they also grew black caps, which are black raspberries, uh, and they happened to be in that business at just the right time. At that point, they were using black caps to flavor Dr. Pepper. And it was a very, very um, specialty farm crop. At one time, they had 80 acres, which was about 20% of the world production. So, <laughs> so that meant that they did have a good understanding of a very labor-intensive crop like grapes when we mm -hmm. got involved with, with the vineyard. And so as far as we can understand, you focused on grape growing specifically and not the winemaking aspect of it? Or did you also make the wine? Well, I think the thing, we had seriously considered putting in a winery. And what it came down to is big hole, little <laughs> shovel. In other words, it's very expensive to put in a winery. Plus, we chose our lifestyle to be child-free. And there was a case of, who do you pass it on to? At the present time in our family trust, the vineyard will be sold and then divided up between whatever it's purchased for, between Chemeca Community College with their wine center. Wine studies program. And yeah. Oregon State as a chair of viticulture down there. So that's where, but uh, I'm glad we did not go the way of the winery. Why is that? It is heavily, heavily intense involvement. It's not one of these things where our vineyard, we could shut it down mm -hmm. during the winter months. And with a winery, it's just you make the wine, you got to go sell it. And then you got to start worrying about covering all the costs that are involved. I admire the people who have the fortitude and the wherewithal and the desire to make the best Pinot Noir in, in the world here. I, I really am impressed with that. It's, it's an interesting set of skills you find because oh. between the growing of the grape and then the selling and the marketing oh. and all that, it's an interesting set of skills for one person or family. Yeah. Right. And not having a winery probably has allowed us to take in and travel throughout the world. We go to wine regions, we go to symposiums like in Australia, Germany, and uh, it has opened our eyes. The one of the things I think that Oregon has probably above a lot of regions, the people here when they came into the business are very sharing. They're willing to take and share. If you have a problem or don't understand what you're doing, you can call up one of the neighbors who's probably two or three or four years ahead of you <laughs> and ask them, well, we're doing this, what are we doing wrong? Uh, the other part is the growers group in Salem. Why don't you talk about that? That's There's a Willamette Valley Grape Growers Group that's been uh, going on since the um, 1970s yeah. when Don Byard, who at that time had um, Hidden Springs Winery, started it. 
Um, it's still going today. It meets the first Tuesday of every month. It's not a, a real organization <laughs> in terms of the fact that there's no membership dues, there's no uh, organization. It's all done on a volunteer basis because um, it, it fills a need for people. So it's both a social and an educational need. And we um, almost always have a speaker for the meetings and currently I'm in charge of getting the speakers for the meetings. But that's been a great way for people to both share information and to glean information from other people who are experts like the, the speaker um, this past week was Patty Skinkus, uh, uh, OSU Wine Vineyard Extension. We just saw, we just so, were at the symposium yes. up in yeah. Portland, right? Yes. So kind of like a grape growing support group. Yes. Or more or less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the speakers, do you try to vary among the different parts of the industry? Are they people within the organization that, or within your group that talk? Oh, it, it's all over the ballpark. It's, yeah, we've had, um, we had someone talking about um, drones, which they prefer to call UAVs, but <laughs> <laughs> recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Kurt Whitman from uh, Farm Credit talked about the financial side of things recently. Um, so it's really wide ranging. Yeah. And then we've had uh, growers from the industry uh, talk on a panel of about five people talking about their experience with labor, uh, contracts for the grapes, which I think uh, was very, very important because back when we first started, we didn't have the slightest idea about how to sell the grapes. Had no idea. That was going to be my next question. How did you sell your grapes originally? How did you find buyers? Well, a lot of it was was involvement in uh, industry organizations. Um, I've always been really active in, in the various organizations. And so uh, at that point, besides the growers meetings, there, there was um, the um, Oregon Wine Growers Association. And at that point, there were regional groups. And so um, that was a great way to get acquainted with um, wineries and find out what their needs were. And so that's how we really started out. And then eventually, um, when the need arose to find some, some, as the vineyard grew and the need arose to find some additional buyers, we made conscious choice to really look for wineries that were um, making excellent wines that were getting really good scores. Uh, and that hopefully would do vineyard designated wines uh, to build the, the reputation of our vineyard, which we've been fortunately successful in doing. Did you, oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that this, <laughs> this thing about selling grapes is all based upon your personal choices of the winery and trust. The, the thing trust is probably more important than anything else. There is, I don't know if you've heard it from other growers or people in the industry, you do not burn a bridge in this industry because the person that you may have a disagreement with may be your savior 10 years down the road. And so relationships between the growers and the winemakers is the utmost importance. It's such a small community. Oh, it is. If you angry someone, it's going to be... 
friends of friends of friends, I assume. And another important part of getting to know people is being sure that you are working with um, people who have a reputation for paying their bills, <laughs> as opposed to using their growers for their bankers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you learn to write contracts that then have um, interest for overdue payments, <laughs> so that there's some incentive to actually get paid and, do, and get paid on time. I think one of the things that we made a special effort was to take and go to what we thought, and it's, it's proven out to be the best winemakers around. We had a long-standing contract with um, Ken Wright for almost, what, 12 ten years, years, 10 yeah. years. We had uh, a young lady, <laughs> she was a young lady at that time, uh, Kathy Joseph Fiddlehead out of California, in the Santa Barbara area. And we sold to her for about 10 years. Uh, I think we went with Don Lang at one time. There were 10 or 12 wineries yeah. that we sold to at over time. time. Yeah. Did you, did you ever grow different grapes to sell to a certain winery? Did you, or did you just grow the grapes you wanted to grow and then okay? Well, grow it, and sell yeah, them? it's the thing about the, your vineyard, it's constant revol revolving, mm -hmm. changing. Uh, we've done the, Chardonnay that we had put in before, uh, we grafted it all over, totally, because we could not get it mature enough. Um, we tried, the main thing we tried was different trellising systems, and that was probably led by the fact that we traveled throughout New Zealand and Australia, France, and saw the different types of uh, trellising systems. But uh, Come on. it has been a learning experience straight up. There is no other way of doing it for us. I think one of the things that uh, the younger growers who have come into the industry in the last 10 or 15 years is that, number one, they have different clones available to them, which we never had before. They have uh, resistant rootstock now which was never before. Uh, the varietals are, are unending. And then I think there is a th process of what kind of trellising is going to be the best. And for us, it's a single upright. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be, be able to get the grapes mature in the time that's uh, towards harvest. <laughs> uh, so it, the, the vineyard will probably be always revolving. Well, and, and you asked about whether we'd done something in, in cooperation with a winery specifically, and there were actually two times when we did that. We, um, I, uh, earlier, Dick mentioned that um, our first five acres included um, 0.6 acres of Miller Turgal, mm -hmm. and um, that became pretty passe, and so we were going to graft it over to Pinot Noir, and we were working with a winemaker at that point that really wanted Gruner Veltliner. And so um, we said, okay, we'll, we can yeah, do that for that much. And you know, we're going to graft it to something. And so, so we ended up grafting that to Gruner Veltliner. And um, it's really worked out very nicely. They've made some you know, 
nice wines with it and uh, it's actually um, with um, Willamette Valley Vineyards now because they lease the whole thing at this point but uh, for several years it was the winemaker that uh, that had originally asked us to do that and then our last planting of Pinot Noir we actually there was a winemaker who wanted us to to really wanted to get some grapes from us at that point and so we worked with him and and uh, tightened up the spacing and did did that uh, differently than we'd done in, in uh, other other blocks and did a little bit different trellising so I have to chuckle about the fact of uh, establishing a vineyard back in the 80s was based upon the size of your tractor <laughs> it really was because nobody had the uh, the idea like the French are on a meter by meter by meter process nobody thought about narrow tractors that just weren't around and so our uh, beginning of the vineyard was based upon a David Brown tractor because my father-in-law was good enough to allow us to use his equipment at that time. And uh, we, uh, like you said, we tried every different kind of trellis that you could think of. And then we uh, went with narrow and narrow and finally the last 10 acres we put in to complete the 60 acres was on a very narrow basis. Uh, we went with all wooden posts. Uh, we even went to a veneer, uh, oak veneer mill here in the Grand Round, and we bought all our peeler posts that were left over and used those as our end posts. As I recall, they cost one dollar a piece. No, it was ridiculous. <laughs> they were ridiculous. But it, it's amazing. We, we took about a thousand of them, you know, and it uh, helped with doing the vineyard. And they lasted. Some of them are still out there after 20, 30 years. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, it's amazing because they were not treated. <laughs> Sometimes when the tractor hit them, it, uh, the tractor lost. Because <laughs> they were, you know, very large. Uh, getting to the end of our association with the, the vineyard we have leased it out mm -hmm. this is our eighth vintage coming up isn't it I think so yeah uh, to Willamette Valley winery 2000, 2007 is that yes yeah correct? and it uh, is an interesting relationship at one time we were selling almost 60 percent of our grapes to them mm -hmm. way back in the uh, 90s and they said we were charging too much money for our grapes. And so the relationship was ended, but it goes back to this, I was mad. <laughs> but it goes back to what my Betty said was, don't burn the bridge deck, you never know. And lo and behold, they approached us, like I said, about eight years ago, and said, uh, we'd like to rent the whole entire vineyard. Well, and, and we had reached the them. point then after Dick had uh, triple bypass <laughs> surgery <laughs> that um, he needed to get off the tractor. <laughs> so we were exploring yeah. the possibilities of either leasing out the vineyard or hiring a vineyard management company rather than doing it ourselves. And um, we really had a long relationship with Jim Bernot. I've been on uh, the board of directors of Willamette Valley Vineyards since um, 1990 or so. Um, and Jim and I have been friends since um, we both planted our grapes in 1983. 
Uh, so, mm -hmm. and they were really at the point where they were really looking for um, a high quality vineyard like ours to um, um, do some single vineyard designates. And, and so it was really um, a very mutually beneficial process and they're making some great wines that we're really happy with. Very happy. Get to, so. get to enjoy the wine now without doing any of the work. I yes. Know, that's pretty nice. Yes. No, it's better to receive that check every month. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it. That. <laughs> I think the thing that uh, is really important here, Willamette Valley Winery has made a huge footprint on this farm. They leased our 60 acres. It took me a couple, three years to talk to my brother-in-law that Christmas tree wasn't the best thing for our hillside here. And I talked him into working with Willamette Valley for purposes of leasing and having also Willamette Valley to take and buy 80 acres. And that is going to make a huge impact up in this area. Right now, the they'll end up with what, about 250? 240, 240, 240 acres. Okay. Probably 250 by the time yeah. uh, they have the first right of refusal to buy our vineyard and that's what that's everybody expects happen. will happen. And so at the, some point they'll have our whole 100 acres which has uh, some more plantable acres mm -hmm. uh, beyond the, the 60 acres. So. So it will end up that they'll yeah. have a, a, about 250 acres here. The vineyard that you had a chance to probably look at mm -hmm. when you turned onto the gravel road, that belonged to us at one time, but uh, this bypass sort of takes the wind out of your sail a little bit. And so what uh, is approached by Ted Castile at Bethel Heights. And they said, do you have any land over there that we might? And I said, boy, are you lucky. <laughs> no, we sat down and talked about, uh, we probably would, and I was backing off a little bit on the farming. And we came to a price, which was a very good price for at that time, eight years ago. And we knew that the land would be treated well. We knew that they would try to do the best. And be, be good neighbors. <coughs> And be very good neighbors. Yes. Because the AVA that we have here, the Ola Amity AVA, every one of us on is interconnected with each other to do the best possible job we can for this AVA. Uh, I think we have something very, very special here that we just don't have in the other AVAs. We have the Van Duzer uh, corridor effect of. In the summer, we get these cool afternoon breezes that come down, and you probably had a chance to enjoy them when it's <laughs> 90 degrees outside and it drops down. So we have nice cool evenings and yet warm days. And then the exposure of this Eola Hills here is amazing. And if you listen to the geologists talk about what was here and what was on the, in the valley floor, is amazing. We have all this uh, jory so uh, uh, soils that are up here. We have some acacia. What else? That's okay. It. Yeah. Okay. okay. And uh, those are all done by lava that was brought into this area. And uh, they talk about when the Missoula floods came that 
this was an island. Mm -hmm. And all the soils that were brought in. And, I, and when we finish here, we'll go out into the vineyard. And I'll show you the um, Montana granite that was huge deposits here in this hillside. Yeah, it, it is. It's pretty darn cool. But I think uh, we're very, very fortunate. And we fell into it. Let's face it. We're just <laughs> dumb luck. Yeah, it was. And hard work. It was a lot of hard work. <laughs> and a lot of the hard work was from my parents <clears throat> in, in buying and establishing the farm itself. Yeah. So in many ways, you know, we always, I mean, it, it appears that the second generation of yes. uh, winery family uh, reaps the benefits. And in some ways, we've had that opportunity oh, yes. because we're really the, uh, the first generation of the vineyard, but the second generation on this farm. And so thanks to my parents. We yeah, I think the Ole Hills were meant for grapes. <laughs> I really do. I think... Uh, I can't think of any other place. Uh, trying to think of other areas that we've been to. Chablis, little Chablis area of France with Chardonnay uh, is very much the hillside. Mm -hmm. And of course the Burgundians and their areas, they're all nice gentle slopes. So we've been very fortunate. So to back up a little bit to when you did plant the vineyard and mm -hmm. we're getting the business going, um, how did you, did you set out with defined roles and how you each would operate? Did you kind of fall into how your roles would be? <laughs> how does that, how did that evolve over the years? Oh. Dick managed the vineyard. Yeah. And I more managed the, the business, <laughs> but we both worked in the vineyard. I mean, Absolutely. we both, you know, for the first five or 10 acres, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> we visited every plant <laughs> many times. <laughs> Didn't always do things right, but fortunately, they're very forgiving <laughs> plants. Well, we made an agreement uh, with each other that I could not stop in the middle of September in October to do harvest. Because teaching is another game here that you have to be there to mm -hmm. do it. And so what we uh, basically did says, well, guess what, lady love? You get to do the harvest. <laughs> now, sure enough, I'd come home, be here by 4.30 or 5, and there were many times it would be clear into the middle of late evening because we were loading, the for uh, with the forklift loading the trucks to take the grapes to the winery. But I will say, <laughs> she, and we always joke about this, <laughs> After I retired, this <clears throat> weather or climate changing that's going on, we were getting these total dry Indian falls, mm -hmm. or Indian summers, and I never had to fight the rains. Where he never she, saw the rains that I was dealing with in the, I, in the uh, middle 90s oh. that made harvest really miserable. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, labor is always, well, it was not such a big problem back here because you would have people wanting to come and work in your vineyard. Mm -hmm. Today, it is one of our major problems. 
We heard about that at the symposium last oh. week. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Really, really important information to know that the, the labor situation is, is in a continual state of change and it's never going to go mm -hmm. back to the way it, the, the plentiful mm -hmm. supply that there was in the past. I, mean, I think the thing about it is the money that we made, we poured it right back into the vineyard. In other words, it was a cash flow as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both kept our day jobs oh, all yes. the time we're doing it. And I said it would be my retirement income. And I said, and oh, he yeah. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After I'm gone. <laughs> but it is. It's yeah. been, and it, it has, has turned out very, to be really good. great. <laughs> we can't complain. I always get a, uh, get a laugh out of the advertisement. Uh, yeah. When I retire, I'm going to put a vineyard in. <laughs> and how's that working for you? <laughs> so you've talked a little bit about this before, but um, in both Eola specifically and some of the Willamette Valley in general, mm -hmm. but we're always curious to know what people think uh, the region is known for. And, and that can be in terms of varietals or in terms of attitude, atmosphere. But how do you feel Oregon wine and specifically Eola, Amity Hills, Willamette Valley, how do you feel, what, the, what are they known for? How, what is the reputation? Well, if it weren't for Pinot Noir, we wouldn't be on uh, a front cover story in the Wine Spectator every year. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that has to be it. I mean, that's, that's our why. Uh, and yeah. one of the reasons for that is because um, we're not competing against the entire wine industry in, of the universe. First of all, we're at very high price points, uh, so we're not in the in a jug wine uh, situation. And secondly, there are really only four places, about four places in the world that that grow um, world-class Pinot Noir. So our, our competition is a much smaller universe in in. Pinot Noir than it would be in some other varieties. I certainly think that there are other varieties now that are doing very well and that are um, becoming well known too. But um, Pinot, I mean, you know, Pinot Gris and some wonderful Chardonnays are coming out now that we have uh, clones that are compatible with this area um, and other things. So um, th that's really important to broaden the base. But uh, in my opinion, Pinot Noir is is and has to continue to be our flagship. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing besides is the people. Mm -hmm. we, you think back the David Letts and the Ponzi's and Adelschein. These people came in with a dream. And I always get a big kick out when I hear the bio on David Lett being told by UC Davis professors, oh, you can't grow grapes up there, it's too wet, it's too cold, it's yada, 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 the soils are not right and all this. And they had the uh, dream of coming up and trying. And who would have guessed? Do you think that, we always, we, when we talk about that story, we always think it's interesting that you ended up with these people like David Lett and mm -hmm. Dickie Rath and Dick Ponzi and David Allergen, mm -hmm. and people who were kind of Renaissance men that kind of yes. got the ball rolling up here. Do you think that it would have that, that it succeeded here partly because they were that they were willing to kind of start an industry from scratch, or do you think that it was sort of a necessity that they had to kind of do all of the tasks needed uh, mm -hmm. and do the the growing and the marketing and the selling all that kind of stuff uh, out of necessity? We're always curious about. 
people's thoughts on that. I think these people came here with a dream. Mm -hmm. It had, whether they made a, a living out of it or not, it was strictly a dream to make the, the holy grail of grapes. Because <laughs> uh, when, we, <laughs> when we started our little five acres to go with, we had no concept of making money off of it. We wanted to enjoy the lifestyle that was there and know more about it. <coughs> and frankly, one year, we left 10 tons of grapes in the vine because we didn't have a buyer. Mm. And that's when we got off our duffs and said, hey, we better go out and see who well, we can find. Well, and also, I mean, people would buy them, but for virtually Nothing. less than Nothing. what it cost to pick the grapes. And we said <coughs> we weren't willing to depress the prices anymore. We were so we better were. off to leave them on the vines. So yeah, We could do that because we didn't give up our day jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I'm just pl really pleased with the people that I've met in the, in the uh, industry itself. Sure, it's going to change, and it is changing. Uh, there's probably going to be big companies come in. Uh, land here is to what is compared to in Napa and Sonoma, Alexander Valley in California and the Imperial Valley. This is cheap land for them, and we just let our, our heads just spurl when they come in and talk about prices they want to pay. But down there, $100,000 an acre is peanuts. And they come up here, and they, gee, we can, we can do something here. So it will probably change, but I think it will always have that homespun pioneer type thing because Oregon has been that way all its time here it's always been that way and I think it won't change much because people come here with a dream well and it's always I think going to be pretty much the lower production higher quality mm -hmm. yeah. uh, with the with the higher prices for the wine it's it's the nature of um, the weather and the soils here that that you don't have huge productions amounts, and so it, the quality um, the quality is key. Um, you have to make good wine here, or you won't be in the business yeah. very long. And so, it's attention to the details and really wanting to do a great job and build a great reputation for the wines in the area. And I think everybody has always understood that because it's such a small area uh, with such a relatively low production that uh, the reputation of, of every wine in Oregon needs to be as good as it can be because there are lots of people may, may have never tasted an Oregon wine, and if the first one they taste is not a stellar one, then mm -hmm. they may not taste another one. So it's in everybody's best interest to be collaborative and to raise the quality of, of all of the products. Hi, my name is Camille Weber, and I'm with Jake and Betty O'Brien. Um, and my first question is, what is your favorite grape to drink? Uh, to grow versus what's your favorite grape to drink in the wine? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, this would be a sin if we said anything else. <laughs> uh, 
You know, we've been, I, I think we've been to enough places of regions of growing grapes, and I think every one of them has a different, but for Oregon, I think it's Pinot. Well, I love Chardonnay. Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, but I also appreciate a lot of other wines. Yes. I like um, Pinot Gris and Chardonnay and Tempranillo. Um, not a big Cabernet Sauvignon fan. And probably Merlots are all right, I, with uh, with a heavy meal, probably so. But the one that kind of surprises more than anything is this Gruner Veltliner. Yeah. It is halfway between a Pinot Gris and a Riesling. It's the number one grape in Australia or Austria, Austria. and uh, it's a nice picnic wine. Oh. Have you ever had a chance to taste uh, Muscat? I'm not 21 yet. Oh my God! <laughs> Can't legally answer that one. <laughs> no. Well, a little deeper. You have sack. lots of exciting experiences ahead. Yeah, when I get there, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. Oh yeah. Well, and, and one of the great parts of the wine industry is really the opportunity to experience great wine and food mm -hmm. pairings, and so trying different kinds of wine and and understanding what complements different things. Um, is is remarkable. Um, I remember a, a meal in in Italy with wild boar, and the local wine there was absolutely the perfect match for it. I mean, the two of them were just spectacular. And that's not that a wine. Chianti? No, that was um, the wine they do by the drying process, oh, <laughs> which has slipped my mind right now. But at any rate. Um, that wouldn't be my favorite wine to drink every day, but with that so particular big. dish, it was awesome. It was just a perfect match. So those are the kinds of, one of the kinds of things that are, are really fun about um, and I think that's probably the pretty, opportunities you have in the industry. Yeah, pretty good idea. We are blessed again in the Pacific Northwest of having culinary foods that are seafoods, lamb, and beef uh, that really go well with our wines. We're very, very fortunate in that respect. And lots of great restaurants which oh, go hand in hand with yeah, the and getting with more the wine that. industry. So, hey, would you mind talking a little bit more about the collaboration <coughs> between wine industry and the restaurants and how important? those two collaborating together are for both of those different businesses? Well, I don't think we would have, I don't no. think we would have the culinary scene that we have in Oregon if it weren't for the wine industry here. I think that the, the, the food has grown with the availability of the wine. But I also think that another aspect is that we have all the wonderful fresh fruits and vegetables here. Yeah. And that's all a part of the, the idea that Oregon is known for being clean and green. And that's a very important aspect of the wine industry here. Um, the vast majority of um, vineyards are grown uh, sustainably, um, largely with, with live. Um, but also with, with other, other kinds of sustainable practices. And um, so that all goes hand in hand with really um, fresh, healthy foods, I think. Betty doesn't tell you, but she taught 
at Chemeketic Wine Studies. She taught uh, the first Well, I actually, yeah, I headed the industry committee that created the wine marketing program yeah. at Chemeketic, and then I taught um, introduction to wine marketing for about seven years there. That was actually my next so. question. <laughs> so I did do my homework and find a long list of the credentials. So. She is very active. It's just, we kind of joke about this. I always say to her, where are you going today? <laughs> and then she says, da, 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 da. And I said, when will you be home? Because <laughs> she's very active. Betty has the skills of knowing how to run a meeting. In the wine industry, people are basically very interested in making good wine, but sometimes when it comes to the organizational side, that isn't where they're interested. And she's a perfect example of being able to do that. It's interesting that you guys both really value education. Uh, oh. <laughs> you were an educator for 30 years. No. And Frankly, it's the only way we're ever going to get out of the mess that we are in the world. Nicely put. Yeah, <laughs> and we are in a mess. Tell me where you want us to go. Well, I was actually going to ask um, Betty, your intro to wine, make, uh, wine marketing. Um, we hear a lot about how difficult it is to grow the grapes, but it's a totally different ballgame to actually sell them and make a profit. So. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, that, if that would be okay. Well, people have come a bit late to that, dis that shocking discovery that once it's in the bottle, <laughs> just letting it sit there, it doesn't sell itself. Right. Um, and, and so as the industry has grown, uh, there's become more and more of a need for that. And um, Chemeketic Community College with the Wine Studies Program has really been a wonderful resource for the wine industry and has worked very closely with the people in the wine industry to do whatever is needed to um, create the workforce that we need for the wine industry. And so um, once the, the viticulture management and the winemaking programs were well established, then they were interested in starting wine marketing mm -hmm. and now in the last couple of years since we've hired Michael Adams to be a full-time uh, marketing and wine business instructor we've been able to actually expand it from marketing to wine business so that um, it includes now some some new courses in in uh, things like um, export and uh, then there's some um, you know, budgeting and farm management and that kind of things as well. But the marketing is, is really a key thing. And there are so many jobs that are available in the wine industry that have to do with marketing and sales. Um, and that's not something that uh, most people who uh, whose dream is to make the ultimate <laughs> Pinot Noir is not to <laughs> be the ultimate salesperson. <laughs> so, so it's a really important aspect of successful business in wine. And um, there are you know, more and more people that are realizing that and becoming adept at it. And one of the neat things for me when I was teaching the class was that uh, many of the... Um, vineyard management and winemaking students also took that class and and a lot of them are people who actually were either already doing or looking at doing uh, startup 
wine or wine businesses of their own. The um, discovery that wine marketing was not their forte was a really valuable part of the class for many of them. And the recognition of how important it is then for them to hire a real professional to, to work in those areas. So I think that uh, sometimes it's great to give people the impetus to go ahead and discover that wine marketing is their place in the world. And it's equally important for someone who's in the business to discover that they need help with that area and someone else needs to do that and they need to do what they're good at and love. <laughs> I think Betty has said it many times to me. She says, you've got to have a story to be able to sell your wine because you are just one of 10,000 right. wine uh, producers that are out there. And you've got to find that little niche to be able to tell your story, to make people remember and understand. But Oregon has a story all of itself. People Which all over the world yeah. know, if they're in agriculture now, <clears throat> uh, know where Oregon is. And they understand what we're doing here. They say it's the greenest, purest, you know, and all these good pluses about Oregon. And I, that's pretty special. Well, and a successful wine is an experience, not just a beverage. Yeah. So that's an important part of it too. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Betty, again, I'm gonna ask you one more question. Um, I wanna hear a little bit more about your involvement in the Oregon Wine Association Board because it seems that you've you know, had a lot of leadership experience uh, within that organization. Um, and the president at one point, director and treasurer, if I'm not mistaken. Right, back in uh, uh, the 19, late 1980s, I was first on the regional Oregon Wine Growers Association um, board, and then on the statewide Oregon Wine Growers Association Board, and then ultimately I became president in, in 1990, which was an interesting year because that was the year that phylloxera was first discovered in Oregon vineyards. So that was a challenging process and a very scary time for people. It was uh, really you know, something that we didn't know a lot about and it made a huge change in cultural practices because people began then to plant uh, uh, grafted, ungrafted grafted onto rootstock rather than own rooted plants. Mm -hmm. But so so I've been active in that for all the time we've been involved mm -hmm. in grape growing. And then in um, 2000, 2001, I um, was asked to be interim director for the um, let's see, what was it called at, at that point? It's now the Oregon Wine Board, which is the trade organization and the Oregon Wine Growers Association is is the um, legislative advocacy group but then the uh, Oregon Wine Board is the and it was the Wine Advisory Board Oregon Wine Advisory Board before that so when I started it was the Oregon Wine Advisory Board and they were working through the legislative process to make a change to an independent state agency rather than a um, a more commodity commission-like thing. And so 
they hired me and uh, to be an interim director while they worked us all out and figured out what they wanted and what they were doing. <laughs> and originally I was told, well, it might be six months. <laughs> and it went through the process um, and ultimately uh, was signed into law. And I ended up being there for about three years. <laughs> as the interim director. So that, that was an interesting experience too. So, so I've seen um, pretty much all sides of, of the industry organizations. Yeah, and now I'm just finishing up a term as president of the EOL Amity Hills Wine Growers Association, the AVA group. Um, I'm also the chairman of the advisory committee for Chemeketa uh, Wine Studies Program now. Right, and what was your call to action? I mean, how did you were you approached by someone, or did you hear about it, you know, through different winemakers or different vineyard owners? Well, I, I got involved originally in the Oregon Wine Growers Association because I thought it was an important way for us to get uh, acquainted with people in the industry and essentially to get acquainted with wineries so that we could make contacts and um, sell our grapes. <laughs> um, and, and learn more about the industry and you know so so that's how that happened originally but a lot of the things since then um, I was also president of live for a while mm -hmm. um, since then mostly people have asked me to do things yeah. <laughs> I did not ask to be president of the ABA <laughs> it's been a lot of work <laughs> but we're making good progress and so <laughs> So that is the end of all of my questions, but is Super. there anything that you guys would like to share or you know, something I should have asked and didn't? I think you've done an excellent job. I it's been great. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really happy that we've been involved in the Oregon wine industry. Oh, um, it's enhanced our lives a lot. Uh, we've met all kinds of really wonderful people, and it's really developed a, a terrific community for us. Before you sign off, I'm just, mm. I wanted to follow up. I, I had forgotten about your involvement with Live. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you became involved in that and, and how you see it, how it's changed the, the, the industry, or what, how it's affected the industry? Um, Alive is a, is a great organization, and I think it's done a wonderful job. It's been absolutely amazing to me to watch it grow. It um, started, um, I, I'm not sure which year, but about 2000, and um, it really struggled for a long time. I mean, it was really hard to get a foothold, and we did not join quickly. No. Um, not because we didn't believe in all of the, the tenants of live and, and what it was doing, but because I just didn't want to do the paperwork. <laughs> so <laughs> There's a certain amount of independence when you do a farm. I'm not going to have somebody from the outside tell me what to do. That kind of attitude. And uh, once you looked at it as a basis of again selling the Oregon concept of, of wholesome uh, food and purity and everything we try to do here, uh, <clears throat> that made sense. Because it was trying to take and have, show people that we care about 
our land. We want to not just take and spray everything out. Uh, California woke up much later and understood that they could not do the <clears throat> uni-type agriculture like they're doing. They're going to have to take and do some more. And uh, it caught on <clears throat> sustainability in agriculture, and I think the vit uh, viticulture part uh, has been a forefront in the movement to do a better job with what we're doing with it. We don't want, we want to leave this land for the next four or five generations, just like they do in France. We don't want to use harsh chemicals. Uh, we want to <coughs> do s things like composting. And uh, these are the things that are important to the farmers in uh, the viticulture of Oregon. And having third-party certification through a group like, like Live then tells the world that this, you're really serious about this. And, and so I think having the vast majority of, of uh, mm -hmm. the acreage of, of vineyards involved in that is a really valuable thing. And the wineries are looking at it also as a way of putting that little stamp on the bottle. Sustainability. We care about our streams, we care about our soils, we care about what you're going to be drinking later in life. <laughs> 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 Got to tease you a little bit. Ah, thanks. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and I think that just like quality, sustainability is an expectation of Oregon wines. Yes. People yes. believe that that's what will come out of Oregon is, is uh, a product from people who care about the environment. Do you think the quality might suffer from more vineyards and more wineries popping up? I mean, within the last 10 years, we've, what was it, we've you know, about, doubled. about doubled in yeah. size in terms of who's in the wine industry. I don't think so. I don't think because so. Because the footprint has already been placed there by live, by the pioneers that came here with the idea of what they were trying to do. Uh, so it's really important that we take and continue that on. And I, I'll give you a very good uh, example is when Kindle Jackson Corporation showed up here, everybody sort of shuttled a little bit. But they came in with the attitude, we are willing to do it the Oregon way is the way they put it, which is really important, the Oregon way. That's special. The Oregon way is that when the pioneers came, as far as the winemakers that came out of California and came here to do their Oregon dream, is they went to the legislature and asked them, tax us. Everybody shook their head and said, what? What they did was they put a $25 per ton, I think it was, huh? I think that's um, right. Yeah, on the grapes. That money be, would be Plus used, there's a tax on wine too. Yeah, there's a tax on wine. Would go to the organization to have a presentation of what to the, the Oregon, what's now the Oregon Wine Board Oregon, to yeah. pay for marketing and for research. And the research, and the research is research. very important. Yeah. 
And so that was really, the other thing we did, we wanted to have uh, a thing called truth and labeling, that if it says Pinot Noir and a certain clone on it, that that is what's in the bottle. And California didn't have that. Much higher percentage than is yeah. required nationally, yeah. So. Yeah, we're way above on, and on the curve of that to show that we really care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.